and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Aram Sinreich, Associate Professor in the School of Communication at American University. We will discuss his new book, The Essential Guide to Intellectual Property, which is published by Yale University Press, as well as his work on the cultural history of intellectual property more generally. So welcome to the show, Aram. Thanks so much, Brian. Oh, it's great to have you on. Um, uh, I really enjoyed the book chapter you sent me, but I was wondering if before we talk kind of more specifically about that chapter, you could talk more generally about the book, the book itself and sort of talk a little bit about the goal of the book and sort of how you approach intellectual property. In other words, kind of, what do you think is essential to know about intellectual property and how did you approach that in this book? Sure. Um, great question. Uh, so I'm a communication scholar. That's what my doctorate's in. I have a master's in journalism. I am a working musician. So my perspective is totally based on a kind of cultural understanding of the role of law in society. I'm interested in copyright law, patent law, trademark law, to the extent that they serve as um, some of the levers and parameters that shape social and cultural action. So um, I've done a lot of work in this subject over the years, mostly as a kind of critic of copyright maximalism and as somebody trying to figure out ways to reconcile the decidedly uh, printing press era contours of, of copyright law with the kind of realities of digital cultural flows and, and networked cultural processes. So um, I had done a lot of work on that subject. I'd written a book called The Piracy Crusade a couple of years ago. That was um, kind of a, a, an in-depth critique of copyright maximalism and the, the rhetoric of piracy that, that often accompanies it. And I was, frankly, pretty sick of the subject. I, I, I felt like I'd said my piece and I wanted to move on. And I got an email from uh, Yale University Press asking me if I wanted to write a course book on, on intellectual property. And, you know, at, for any academic, that's a kind of a flattering thing is, you know, a major press asks you to write their definitive book on a, a given subject. So I, I was kind of in a bind. I, like, I felt like on the one hand, like I'd be an idiot to say no, but on the other hand, like how many more books do we need that are, that say, you know, copyrights are for this, patents are for that, trademarks are for this. Here's an example of how it works. Um, so what I did was I, I kind of uh, split the difference. And, and what I did was I, I proposed a book to them that was unlike every other IP book I've ever read, especially course books and textbooks, because what I wanted to do was to, to write a book about all the stuff that never gets told, the, the kind of hidden life of IP in the wild, or as I had originally titled the book, A People's Guide to Intellectual Property. Um, and I pitched that book and, you know, I'd have a chapter on lobbying and campaign finance and like where these crazy cockamamie laws come from and and a chapter on you know international relations and intellectual property is a vector of soft power and a chapter on cultural history which i think is the one that we're going to be talking about today you know and looking at how ip has played this integral role in shaping visual and musical communication in the west over the past 500 years um and i fully expected yale to say this looks really interesting thanks but no thanks we're actually just in the market for a textbook um and to my delight and surprise they actually went for it and they said yeah sure we'll call your bluff why don't you write this book um so that's what i ended up writing mm. and all along 
what I was really trying to do was, you know, as a musician, as a communication scholar, and as somebody who critiques the law, even though I'm not a, a lawyer or a law scholar, um, you know, it's always interesting to me how these different universes, and you can throw tech into the mix as well, they're so siloed from one another that not only do they approach the subject from totally different perspectives, but they actually use different sets of language. So they can't even have a productive conversation. So a lot of my work, but especially this, this book, is really geared towards trying to create um, something that integrates those different perspectives in a way that they can actually have a conversation with each other. So the technologists and, and uh, policy people and artists can all be in the same room and figure out, you know, whatever we want out of IP, whatever we hope that the law is going to do for us and for our, our professions and our, for our society, at least we can all have these common understandings about what its actual contours are, how it actually works, where it comes from and where it's going. Mm, mm. Well, so in the context of the book, what do you think is missing? Like what kind of big picture things do you think are missing in the sort of conventional wisdom about intellectual property? In other words, what are the, what are kind of, if if you were to pick out a few really important things that consumers and maybe policymakers as well, don't really understand or don't understand in a productive way, what would you point to? Well, you know, I teach a class on IP to communication students for the most part uh, every year or two. And I can tell you, you know, I see the misconceptions that people are acculturated with every time I have a fresh batch of students. And, you know, some of these are honest mistakes that we make not being experts in in the subject of law. And some of them are kind of uh, the result of disinformation or propaganda from different interested parties who play a role in in the IP ecology. One of them, I think, is the conflation of of, uh, of morality and law. So a lot of people who don't really know anything about copyright or or patent law think that the, the job of the law is to enforce who's right or who's the true author of something or to give somebody credit for something. And, and as obviously anybody who actually knows about IP law, uh, will instantly recognize that's not really what the law is for, right? Uh, and in the in the U.S. especially, the law is based on this constitutional mandate to kind of grant a limited monopoly to a creator uh, or their assignee um, in exchange for making their work available to the public at large. And that's all in the interest of strengthening the public sphere and enriching the marketplace of ideas. And if we lose track of those two facts, number one, the kind of incentive-based um, constitutional dimension of it uh, geared towards strengthening the public sphere, and number two, the inherently mercantile nature of it, the notion that this is, you know, this is a monopoly, it's a market monopoly that is supported by the law and that is transferable and has nothing to do with who's right or who's true or who's good or who's bad, uh, who's uh, a real artist or who isn't, Um, you know, that distinction is so difficult to impress on people who don't have a background in the law. And, And I do a lot of work in the book to kind of tease those different themes out and to say, yes, of course it matters who we consider as a genuine artist and who isn't. And of course it matters who had an idea first. But those things are only marginally related to the, the way that the law actually works in practice and on paper. Um, a, another thing that people don't realize is that in practice, 
IP is often not really used for protection. A lot of our language about IP, copyright, patent, and trademark, um, is couched in this language of, oh, I have to protect my interests in this work, or I have to protect my rights to this invention or this process. Um, and when you actually look at how IP is used, especially in an international perspective, it's really much more frequently used in, in combination with trade law uh, and, and treaties, international treaties, to establish uh, and, and maintain economic relationships between sovereign nations and, and large uh, institutions uh, like corporations. And, you know, if, if especially since the 1990s with the establishment of, of uh, what's known as TRIPS Plus, you know, the World Trade Organization and all that stuff, um, there is this deep intertwining between IP law and other aspects of trade that make the one contingent on the other and essentially turn copyright power and patent power and to a lesser extent trademark power into a, a, a kind of lever of soft power between nations that has both positive and negative consequences. I mean, positive ones being that it, it's another um, vector for accord and for uh, collaboration and free trade between between nations that are allies, uh, that's a definite upside. But a downside being that it, it also creates the infrastructure for the so-called developed world, for the richer nations of the world, to keep um, you know the the so-called developing nations in a state of kind of permanent client status, uh, where there's this kind of negative flow of of wealth out of their nations due to their reliance on products and services that uh, that require IP uh, royalties to be paid back to to large corporations in the in the first world. Um, so anyway, it's <laughs> as you can tell, like it's it's even hard to talk about this on a podcast without sounding like a super wonk. Um, but I think I do a pretty good job in the book, you know, by using um, a lot of kind of colorful and entertaining case studies and and a lot of metaphors and analogies. Um, at, at kind of telling these truths in a way that um, doesn't overly belabor the point and is kind of fun to read and 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 gives people that um, that secondary perspective on the subject that they would not get from reading other books. Yeah, no, I mean, this chapter I thought was really great at that because it takes one of the most kind of value-laden areas of intellectual property, you know, cultural expression, and really looks at this dialectic, as it were, between commerce and expressive speech in relation to that to that sector. I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kind of the emergence of the concept of ownership and the kind of commercialization of cultural expression that you talk about in the chapter and sort of how that sort of gradually reified into what we come to think of as copyright protection today. Sure. Um, well, you can't understand uh, the history of intellectual property without understanding um, the parallel development of two other things. One of them is what we call the modern individual. Um, of course, you know, we've always, to a certain extent, been individual human beings since our species first emerged. But the notion that each of us is endowed with a kind of, you know, that each of us is a, a special snowflake, for, uh, endowed with a unique perspective on the world, that we have our own opinions and ideas, and that those 
become rights and responsibilities uh, with respect to the body politic, those are really ideas that did not exist prior to the, the Renaissance and kind of became institutionally enshrined during the Enlightenment uh, in the West. And the other is the, you know, the notion that, um, that uh, cultural expression is part of the marketplace. There wasn't really a market for cultural products prior to the Renaissance. Um, and to the extent that there was, and there's some great art history books out there that I can point you to that, that get into this in detail. But, you know, when, even in the early Renaissance in Italy, you know, uh, there's a, a book by Michael Baxendahl, the, the art historian, where he, he looks at these contracts that people wrote for painting and, and for other forms of art. And the contracts early on would stipulate like, you know, well, I'm paying good money, this many florins or guilders or whatever. And uh, I demand that you use this shade of lapis and this kind of gold leaf. You know, those are the things that people were getting their money's worth for. Um, flash forward a hundred years, and due to this kind of like exaltation of the great artists during the Renaissance, all of a sudden the contracts would say, you know, I only want Michelangelo to, to, you know, to touch this work. I don't want any of the lesser artists in his studio to do that. And, you know, there was this kind of shift away from seeing art as just uh, an industrial production and towards seeing it as this kind of um, expression of somebody's inner soul. And so the birth of the modern individual and the birth of the culture industry comes simultaneously with the development of intellectual property. And it was actually during the Renaissance in Italy that the, the first patent was created. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the slower evolution of copyright, which mostly happened in England, uh, was also very much tied to these kinds of ideas, although it was also... Uh, kind of emerged out of this uh, this nationalistic protectionism um, when after the printing press uh, the, the the printers of London felt like they had to fight off the, the 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 Scottish printers who were underselling them in the marketplace and that was kind of the initial creation of copyright um, so what I argue in this book and I actually created a uh, an article that that lays out these theories in greater detail on the International Journal of Communication last year. Um, is that there's this ongoing dialectic, as you say, between what we think of as authorship, between our concept of authorship, the, the way that we actually create our laws, the way that, that, that um, the ownership of, of culture gets enshrined into law, um, the, uh, the, the way that markets organize themselves around culture, um, the codes that artists use in order to to express themselves and to make sense of uh, of their work and the technologies that people use to produce culture. And each of those things influences the other one in this kind of never-ending spiral. <laughs> and what I do in the book, and even in a greater extent in the article, is to trace 500 years of Western uh, cultural evolution step by step by step, looking at how it just kind of ping-pongs from, you know, from law to market to aesthetics to technology and back. Mm -hmm. Well, so in the chapter, you look at this sort of relationship between the kind of commercial reproduction based concept of 
quote unquote ownership associated with copyright. And the more kind of evanescent attribution based notion of authorship that we often think of in the moralized terms, I think, that you talk about earlier uh, in relation to both uh, sort of visual art and also in relation to to music. So I was wondering if we could talk about each of those in turn, because I thought both stories were really interesting, uh, especially as the sort of uh, modes of kind of rhetorical engagement with the concept of ownership changed over time. Like, how exactly did, did visual authors use that sort of tension to make kind of expressive moves. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of like your discussion of the sort of kind of signature styles of, for example, the impressionists. And then later the way a lot of like pop artists and appropriation artists sort of started playing with the idea of ownership itself and what it would mean to own or attribute works of art. Yeah, it's totally fascinating. And I've, I've always been interested in art history. Actually, when I was a, a grad student at USC, I, I took some classes in art history, um, kind of on a lark, uh, and ended up discovering that they had everything to do with the cultural processes and the, and the legal processes that I was studying in my more formal course of education. Uh, you know, it all ties together, man. Uh, you know that meme of the character from, I think it's the Big Bang Theory, looking at a whiteboard with like 97,000 different uh, lines connecting all these these uh, these post-its? Uh, I've had on several different occasions students in different classes post a copy of that meme uh, in response to one of my lectures. So I'm, I, I definitely fully cop to seeing far too many connections between far too many things. Um, but to answer your question... Uh, what's one of the really interesting things about the history of cultural expression and IP is that the concepts of ownership really do precede the laws, right? So you have like very famously this um, Renaissance uh, era uh, engraver named Albrecht Durer uh, traveled internationally and, and basically threatened to assassinate somebody who had been making copies of his prints, even though there was no copyright law to support him, and he couldn't claim forgery, which was actually a crime at the time, because the guy had been affixing his own name to the work and not claiming it was Durer's work. Um, And then uh, it was actually another printmaker uh, a couple hundred years later, uh, William Hogarth, who uh, ended up getting um, copyright coverage for visual art for the first time uh, in what was came to be known as Hogarth's Law in in England. Um, And what happens is, um, so there's these two crises that really happened during the 19th century uh, and changed both visual art and the the application of IP to visual art. One is the invention of photography. You know, up until that point, up until the 19th century, artists, uh, visual artists, painters and sculptors really had kind of... um, a monopoly on the ability to reproduce visual information, right? You you would hire a really good painter and they would paint your actual portrait. You know, the presidents of the United States still do this. Um, and, you know, that would keep them in money and, and keep them in, in oil and canvas uh, so they could paint another day. And then all of a sudden you have this machine that does a much better job of taking the visual world and reproducing it with perfect fidelity than you know, even the Rembrandts of the world could possibly attain to do. And so artists all of a sudden are stuck. They're like, what is our function in this world? 
uh, now that there's a machine that does what we do better than we can do it. And that was one of the ingredients that helped them to invent the concept of, uh, of individualistic uh, and expressive art styles. So that's when you see the kind of, you know, the, the divergence of, uh, of, you know, figurative uh, and representative art from abstract and expressive art. And you get, um, you get uh, impressionism and cubism and surrealism and abstract expressionism, and the, you know, the whole kind of 20th century follows. Um, but IP plays a role in this too, because as people like Hogarth and other visual artists end up pushing harder and harder for legislatures to grant them the same monopoly powers over their work that writers are getting over their, their books and maps and poems and charts and stuff, um, you get more and more kind of, uh, of a uh, cultural reinforcement of this notion that, uh, that a, a visual work of art is the reflection of a single individual. Um, and what happens is that uh, the birth of these individualistic artistic styles emerge at exactly the same moment as the legal infrastructure emerges to support ownership over paintings, right? So, you know, in the U.S., for instance, I think paintings become covered by copyright law in 1870. 1870 is exactly the same year that is usually credited by art historians as the birth of Impressionism. There's no way that that is a random coincidence, that the most um, individualized and individualistic visual style in history up to that point emerges at exactly the same moment that a legal system conferring individual ownership over artistic works becomes enshrined in the law, right? So I, I become very curious at that point about, you know, which comes first, the, the chicken or the egg. And that's kind of why I ended up developing that kind of five point theory was to show, well, neither comes first. It's this ongoing kind of cycle that, that dialectically repercusses on itself over and over and over again through cultural history. But then, as you point out, in the 20th century, something else happens, which is that artists start to be like, hold on, wait a minute, this is BS, right? Sure, we're individuals, but we're also not, right? We think collectively, we act collectively, we imitate each other's styles, we adapt each other's work, we even cut and paste each other's work, right? They start inventing things like collage. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they start, the artists start critiquing the notions of individual authorship that are enshrined in copyright law itself and start pushing back against it and pushing back against it. And this whole debate over whether and to what extent artists should own their own work in a legal sense starts playing out through art itself as a medium of argumentation. And you can understand so much of the 20th century, the progression um, you know, the, the progression from, from uh, cubism through uh, surrealism and abstract expressionism and ultimately to pop art and, you know, neoprimitivism and all that stuff as this kind of conversation about what it means to own stuff. And what happens is that you, you, in, the, in the early, in the mid 20th century, you begin to get artists like um, Calder and Lichtenstein actually incorporating the copyright symbol itself into their artworks as a symbol of their ownership over the work, both legally, but also culturally. And then you get other artists like Jean-Michel Basquiat pushing back and kind of sarcastically putting 
the copyright symbol into their work, not as a way for them to assert ownership over it, but as a way for them to critique the set of legal and economic relationships that subjugate people of color um, within the art world and in the broader society. Um, and I, I talk about some of that and show some interesting examples in the book. But I mean, man, this stuff is endlessly fascinating to me, as yeah. you can probably tell. Yeah, and one one aspect of the story you told in the chapter that I personally have always loved was the way in which especially many of the kind of more kind of contemporary appropriation artists seem to be kind of lampooning the commercial reproduction-based concept of ownership while at the same time kind of vehemently defending the attribution-based, unique object-oriented aspect of ownership. In other words, like it's like it, the same rules don't apply to me as apply to everyone else. Yeah, well, I mean, you've just summed up like Andy Warhol's whole oeuvre in like two sentences. I mean, that's, that's exactly what he was about. I mean, Andy Warhol was like, nobody is special except I'm special because I can point out that nobody's special and look how I get away with it. I can be all rich and famous for doing for painting a Campbell's soup can or, or some Brillo boxes um, or making endless reproductions of Chairman Mao or Marilyn Monroe's face. Um, and, and yet he was like, you know, very, def- and, and he would invite people to come over and contribute to his work and, you know, give them a paintbrush and have them paint on his, on his canvas or, you know, give them a camera and have them shoot a film. Um, and yet he was incredibly defensive of his ownership, uh, both culturally and legally, of his work uh, and, you know, and never stopped self-promoting as being the great uh, visual artistic genius of, of his era. Um, so, yeah, those two things do go kind of hand in glove. Um, and, you know, that gave rise to this whole um, strain that we now call appropriation art that came to define the kind of postmodern era in the U.S., where you have, you know, people like Cindy Sherman um, and uh, Sherry Levine doing these kinds of, you know, uh, re-photography, like taking pictures of other people's pictures and claiming copyright for them, um, you know, or you get like visual artists like uh, like Jeff Koons or Prince, you know, who are like, you know, taking cheesy postcards and turning them into sculptures, basically provoking people into suing them. Uh, in order to, uh, to to make a name for themselves in the way that Warhol did. Um, but whereas in Warhol's case, I, I always feel like there's this level of playfulness and like self-acknowledgement of the absurdity of it all. I think some of these, uh, some of the newer appropriation artists take themselves a little bit too seriously and can be kind of mean-spirited about it. You know, like in comedy, they talk about punching up versus punching down. Like if, you know, if you're going to make fun of Donald Trump, that's a good thing because he's the president and, and there's plenty to make fun of. But if you're going to make fun of the guy down the street, who's like sweeping garbage off the corner, well, like what's the fun of that? Like he's already down at the, at the bottom of the social ladder. Why punch him while he's down? And I feel like, you know, like some of these, you know, the Jeff Koonses and, and you know, some of these people in the appropriation art world right now do a lot of appropriating of lesser known artists. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and use their kind of market dominance to, uh, to, to use the tools of appropriation art in a kind of anti-competitive way. 
And that's another problem with IP law is that copyright doesn't really distinguish between punching up and punching down, right? Appropriation is appropriation, whether you're appropriating, you know, a 16 year old kid at the local high school or, you know, an artist with a, a solo show at the MoMA. And, and it doesn't take power dynamics, the inherent power dynamics between the parties into account. Uh, and, and I think that's an inherent structural problem with the law. And obviously, critiquing it is, is easier than fixing it. But I, 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 think, I think we're, we're not going to square the circle. We're not going to make copyright work for post-industrial network culture until we integrate um, those kinds of power dynamics more directly into it um, in the letter of the law as well as in the interpretation. Well, let's shift for a moment to the second part of the chapter where you talk about some of these ideas in relation to music. Because I think in a lot of ways, the kind of valorization of composers and musical artists as sort of like individual authors is in some ways kind of even more extreme than it is in relation to visual art because the kind of internal critique isn't as widely dispersed or as well kind of internalized by the general yeah, public. and because music is Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No. And and as you say in the chapter, right, or as you point out in the chapter, there in in reality, you know, music is every bit as much a kind of syncretic uh, medium, influenced and driven by a kind of bricolage and appropriation as visual art is. In many cases, maybe even more so in ways that people don't always realize. And I wonder if you could just talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, well, the question is, can I stop talking about this? Because once I start, uh, it's going to be it's going to be tough to wrap it up. But um, this is this is like the subject that I perseverate on all day, every day of my life. And fortunately, I found a job where I'm allowed to talk and write about it at great length. Um, but yeah, so first of all, music is not representative the way that visual art can be, and therefore, people I think are more inclined to believe that it. Uh, the myth that it just kind of originates within one person's mind um, because it, it, there's no obvious, you can't say, you know, I, you can say I, I painted a painting of that tree, but you can't say I wrote it like I wrote a song about that tree. I mean, you could claim it, but if people would be like, okay, whatever, like there's, there's no direct evidence to, to my senses. Um, but the reality is, as you point out, you use the term syncretic. I think that's a, actually a great term for it. Um, musical expression to the best of our understanding. And when I say are, I mean the broad scholarly fields that study music from ethnomusicology to forensic anthropology to, to neurocognition to musicology to, to communication studies. Um, as far as we can understand, music is the um, operating system for human culture that we, we emerged and evolved as a, uh, as a human species through the act of collaboratively producing what we would now call music. And there's a great book by someone named uh, Tomlinson uh, called A Million Years of Music, uh, where he kind of lays out the forensic arguments for this very, very, very in-depth and, and compellingly. Um, and so, so music was always something that was inherently collaborative and collective. And if you think about it, the only way that we make sense of music and the only way we make music that makes sense is by drawing on these very deeply uh, ingrained templates for rhythm, for pitch, for harmony um, that, that make the music make sense. Because without those kinds of consensual uh, ideas about what music means, it would just be a, a, a set of sounds that have no referent 
whatsoever. So given that, um, we have, you know, if you look back at Western music history, and again, I'm very Western biased. That's what my expertise is. Um, Asia is, and, and other regions of the world are somewhat different, but also similar in interesting ways. Um, if you look at Western music history, even during the Renaissance and during the Baroque era and the early classical era, um, it was widely understood that composers would borrow from each other, and that was a term of art, borrowing rampantly and sometimes borrow from themselves right so you know two different major uh themes in um handel's hallelujah chorus are borrowed are borrowed from earlier handel works and mozart demonstrably borrowed from handel and beethoven demonstrably borrowed from mozart uh, including some of their best works you know works like um ode to joy right uh which is considered to be you know the the, the kind of one of the crowning works in, in uh, Beethoven's oeuvre, that melody is a melody that appears first in Mozart. And so as long, uh, there, there were, it's, this is not to say that you could just take someone else's song and claim it as your own. There were limits that were arrived at kind of consensually and, and communally about how much borrowing was, was good borrowing and how much borrowing was bad borrowing. But it was not until the, uh, early, the early to mid 19th century, when music started to get copyrighted in the West, that this became a matter of law. And then this interesting thing happens, which is that as soon as you get music copyright, artists don't stop borrowing, but they do stop borrowing from each other. And you get the birth of these musical movements like Orientalism and uh, folk revivalism and primitivism, where basically Western musical artists start borrowing from people in uh, what we would now call developing nations. They start borrowing from, from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia, basically from anybody who's not likely to have a publisher that's gonna sue them for copyright infringement. And you can completely understand the, the growth in, um, in, in primitivism and in publishers' interest in forms like the blues and folk music towards the end of the 19th century as a way for people to kind of stake legal claims on what had previously been in what we would now call the public domain. Um, and without giving any credit, let alone royalties, to the, to the communities in which these musical ideas originated. Um, and that becomes uh, only evident when somebody messes up. And one of the examples that I use in the book, and I love this example, it's so interesting, is uh, the, the example of Carmen by Georges Bizet, which has this song called The Habanera, which is Now, Bizet did not claim that he wrote that melody, which, by the way, was an instant international hit, like sold millions of copies of the sheet music like overnight after the, the opera uh, premiered in, I think, like 1875 or something. Um, he never claimed it was his melody. He, he believed it was a Spanish folk melody. He was French, um, but it takes place in Spain, uh, that he had adapted into the opera. But unbeknownst to him, uh, probably, it was actually a melody that had been copyrighted and was uh, published by a Spanish composer named Sebastian Iradier 10 years earlier. And so, but Aradia had died between the time when he published it and the time when, uh, when, when 
uh, Carmen premiered. And then right after the premiere of Carmen, Bizet died. And so their two publishers went into this protracted legal battle over what would now be like tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in, uh, in sales of uh, sheet music for this, for this music uh, internationally while the two composers were dead. And the irony of it, and I had to do some tracking down to find the evidence of this, um, but, uh, but Iradier himself does not seem to have written or originated the melody. He went on a fact-finding mission to, um, to Latin America a few years before he wrote it, and he probably heard the melody while on that trip. So the original author of the Habanera, um, which, you know, inspired Iradier, which inspired Bizet, is an unknown Latin American person or people uh, who have never been credited or identified or remunerated. And nobody ever thought to credit or identify or, or remunerate them. The only legal battle was between these two European composers, uh, neither of whom had any real claim over it as its, as its originator. Um, and to me, that is like the perfect microcosm of so many of the different aspects of uh, the mismatch between copyright law and cultural practice that we've been talking about in this conversation. Yeah, no, I love that story as well. And and so, Aram, in, in closing, I mean, I wonder if we could return to this concept of punching up and punching down a little bit, or to think of it more broadly as kind of a concept of cultural hierarchy, like who are the winners and who are the losers, and how that plays out in the concept of, or in the context of ownership of cultural expression, not just in relation to copyright, but also in relation to the concept of, of authorship and who counts as an author and what counts as authorial work. Because I can't help but feel like that tension and that kind of cultural hierarchy is a big part of what was driving the kind of battles over sampling and the kind of origins and, and kind of landscape of hip-hop composition. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, the... To go back to the beginning of our conversation, copyright is a proxy for authorship, and authorship is a proxy for for individuality and selfhood. That is the um, the recognition that you are an individual of value in Western culture, and the hierarchy of ownership over cultural expression is a, both a map of and a reinforcement of social hierarchies in, in Western society. That is unquestionably, demonstrably the case and has been since uh, copyright law was first developed. So the question is, as we develop, as our society changes its shape, as we strive for a more just and equitable society, as the technologies change, as the cultural modes change, how does the battle for supremacy and for the maintenance of those older power relations play out through the battle over who deserves copyright in what context. And hip hop was a huge um, new battleground in that larger war, uh, especially, well, it's, it's, the pendulum has in just in the last five years really begun to swing back. But from the late eighties through the mid two thousands, um, there was just a slew of sampling lawsuits that essentially found that, all of the limitations on copyright's power that existed in other art forms and other media, things like fair use, things like the de minimis rule, somehow 
magically did not apply to hip hop. And a lot of commentators, uh, myself included, pointed out that, you know, these decisions, while they beggared logic, seemed to emulate the, the broader social uh, consensus that the people who make hip hop, which is mostly young people of color living in cities from lower socioeconomic status, were not valuable people and didn't deserve ownership over their work. Uh, and were somehow could only be understood through the lens of, of theft and grift and laziness, which are terms that get used over and over and over again, especially in the early years of hip hop. You know, you have major periodicals like the New York Times, the New Yorker, you know, basically saying that, that, that hip hop is, um, is not a, a valid art form, you know? Um, and, and the courts validate that idea over and over again. And it comes to kind of a head in the mid 2000s when you have these two simultaneous uh, lawsuits about sampling. Um, one was against the, the, the um, African-American hip hop group NWA uh, who had sampled like two seconds of a guitar solo in a, in a funkadelic song. And the other was against the, the white uh, upper middle class um, New York hip hop group, the Beastie Boys, who had sampled like three seconds of, uh, of a flute solo by uh, this guy, James Newton. And even though they, there were substantial similarities, although some important differences between the two cases, ultimately NWA was found liable and the Beastie Boys were not. And it seemed to me and to, to many other people at the time that that was, that was as stark uh, a reinforcement of the kind of color barrier over cultural ownership that you can look for in, in American jurisprudence. And at that time, I was beginning work on uh, what eventually turned into my first book, which was called Mashed Up, which was all about DJ culture and, and sampling. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to, I think it was Gary Adelson, who's a copyright attorney who also used to run an EDM label. Um, and Gary said something along the lines of, don't worry, you know, all the people who grew up listening to hip hop are going to be on the bench in another 10 or 15 years. And the pendulum is going to swing back because they will understand the value of this art form and the validity of sampling as, as, a, as a creative practice. And that is exactly what's actually been happening in the last since 2016. There have been several important lawsuits at both district and appellate levels in the U.S. Um, as well as elsewhere that have established that there is both a de minimis defense and a fair use defense when it comes to sampling and hip hop, uh, which, which is something that I, I think very few people would have seen coming even five years ago. Um, and, and now I'd say we've moved beyond that. And now we're on to the, these new questions, which is something that I'm beginning to look into. Uh, I mentioned it very briefly at the end of my book, but actually my friend and colleague, uh, Pat, after Heidi and I are, are, starting work on a project about this now, which is about post-human or non-human authorship. So you have these two different developments happening right now, one of which is the famous monkey selfie case, where a guy puts um, a, uh, a camera into a macaque's hands and the macaque takes a picture of itself and the guy claims copyright ownership over it and the courts say, well, you didn't take the picture and the monkey doesn't have rights, so there's no copyright in this picture. And then they appeal and, and PETA, the, the, the nonprofit organization that supports animal rights, gets in on the action because they figure if we can get a copyright for a monkey, we can get other rights for a monkey. And if we can get other rights for a monkey, we can get rights for all 
God's creatures. Um, and at the same time, you begin to seek um, uh, arguments and in a few cases, copyright claims made on behalf of, of, of AI authors, algorithmic authorship. Um, you know, there, there are all these really interesting case studies out there right now. For instance, there's um, an algorithm called Reporter Me, which will generate, um, which has been published, has, has published stories in major American news outlets. Um, the question is, you know, is there an author? And if there's not an author, uh, how can there be a copyright? And if there is a copyright, then there must be an author by the law of modus tollens. And therefore, who's the author? Is it an AI? And if an AI can have copyrights, what other rights can an AI have? Is this a doorway somehow into acknowledging the you know, uh, post-human uh, individuality? Are we extending the circle of empathy? Or is this a crass and cynical ploy by the corporations that own these algorithms to massively generate um, cultural works that they can exert monopoly over? Uh, to me, I think that question, that set of questions, not just for copyright, but also for patent, um, are going to be some of the thorniest hurdles we have to face, you know, in the in the coming years. Great. Well, Aram, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, I love your work, and I look forward to reading the whole book, and I hope listeners will check it out. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you.